The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Corinthians 14 at verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you give, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world And none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also." I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that that, that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, that God is really among you.
May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. During the Great Awakening, the great revival of the 1700s, one of the foremost preachers of the gospel was George Whitfield, as many of you know. At that time, in the city of Bristol in England, there was a group of rebellious young men who made a point of mocking Christianity and the preaching of Whitfield. Whitfield had problems with his eyes from his youth, and so he had the appearance of being cross-eyed. And thus, he was deridingly called Dr. Squintum. Some of you kids might laugh at that, but they laughed in those days too. And there was a gang of young men in Bristol who loved mocking Whitfield and disrupting meetings where the gospel was preached. One of them, by the name of Thorpe, became rather skilled at imitating Whitfield in delivering mock sermons at the local pub. There was no TV. There were no, you know, TV sets above the bar and everything with the local football game on. So how did you entertain yourself? Well, Thorpe would read Whitfield sermons to uh, entertain everybody there and uh, would do it with a lot of the mannerisms Whitfield had. And one night as he was doing this and reading from an actual printed sermon of George Whitfield and uh, doing it in derision with his eyes crossed and so on, he suddenly stopped and sat down, trembling and heartbroken, and with the word of God having pierced his heart even as he was mocking it and its messenger. His aim was to taunt and ridicule, but you might say he was accidentally converted, or rather the power of the word of God penetrated his soul and cut him to his heart. And Thorpe ended up becoming a prominent leader of the revival in Bristol, an example of the power of God's word and how it's able to penetrate the hardest heart. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, we find clear teaching about the power of God's word in our lives. The chapter is somewhat complex, and we aren't able to go into every verse in depth, obviously, but Paul is teaching these young believers about certain gifts, and he is especially urging them to excel in prophecy for the upbuilding of the church. And much is said here about speaking in tongues and prophecy, interpretation of tongues. As a young pastor, I was very interested in this, having been in the charismatic movement in my early life. And so I had a book, a stack of about 10 or 15 books that I worked through on all the different sides of this great debate about whether these gifts are still in existence and really did change my views in those years. The stance of the PCA about these gifts involving revelation directly from God is that these sign gifts, we would say, have ceased with the end of the early church era. Once the New Testament was completed, there was no longer need for these gifts, which provided what we might call stopgap revelation to the early church when they did not yet have a completed New Testament. And so you see a big difference between Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians, which is early on in that early church era, and, for example, First and Second Timothy and Titus and so on, where we find the emphasis more on passing along the apostolic deposit of truth 
as the New Testament was being completed. There's quite a shift in emphasis away from these miraculous revelatory gifts. Now, since New Testament times, the gift of preaching has replaced the gift of prophecy. Prophecy and preaching are actually similar in many ways. A lot of prophecy in the Old Testament as well as in the New was not foretelling. It was forthtelling the Word of God. They are similar in many ways, but they are different in that prophecy is given by revelation directly from God to the speaker, whereas preaching is not inspired. You know you're supposed to test everything that I say. It's not inspired. It's not directly from God. Preaching ideally is based on revelation, the written word of God, revelation in the word of God that's already been given. We have it in the Bible. So they are similar, but not exactly the same. But we can draw similar points about them. The early church, of course, had both prophecy and preaching, along with other gifts, such as tongues and interpretation. We aren't going to spend a lot of time discussing that. But since the ending of the apostolic era, we need no more direct revelation. So the church is left with the gifts of preaching, teaching, and other non-revelatory, non-sign gifts because the New Testament is given. What I would like us to do this evening is to draw some important points from our text about the centrality and the power of God's Word as we see it discussed here in terms of prophecy and how prophecy was important in that day to build up the church corporately and Christians individually. So we have four main points. The first is this. The Word of God, the Word of God read and studied and preached and taught is essential for Christian growth. The Word of God is essential for Christian growth. And we see this in verses 1 through 5, especially verse 3 where we see this description of what prophecy is. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their edification, and encouragement and consolation. Three descriptive, wide-ranging words talking about how Christians need to be built up with the Word of God, whether it was that form of prophesy, prophecy as it came in the early church, or whether it's in the finished Word of God as it is in our time. And this comes out in verses 1 through 5 where Paul is emphasizing and urging the Corinthian church, seek this gift of prophecy rather than the gift of tongues because it doesn't help if people don't understand what's being said. We'll see more about that. And so what Paul says here about prophecy likewise applies to preaching based on God's word. It's absolutely necessary for each of us as Christians and for the church corporately. I always think it's vital to emphasize this at the beginning of a new year. And just even though most of us believe this and know this, to be reminded of it and just stop and take stock of that. You and I must realize that of all the books in the world, of all the writings and all the good maybe journals or magazines you may get, all the websites, all the blogs, all the texts, all the tweets, whatever it is nowadays, there is something unique about the written word of God. It is unlike any other, quote, word that we get in our lives. 
Second Timothy 3.16 says, It is breathed out by God. Psalm 119.93 says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Powerful description. Psalm 119.50, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Maybe you're going through affliction. That psalm says, My comfort in my affliction is your word. Or, for example, in John 6.63, Jesus says, The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Isaiah 55.11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is declaring that he works his will through his word. It is powerful. It is potent. And we know this is true in conversion, in turning us from darkness to light. How did each one of us come to know Christ? Whether you came as a six-year-old on your mother or father's knee, or whether you came as a teenager, or whether you came as a young adult, or a middle-aged adult, or a senior. We had a senior citizen come to know Christ at about age 86 in our New Jersey church plant, and we were so thrilled to help disciple her. Whatever the age might be, we came to Christ by the Word of God applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. The Word of God is powerful. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul speaks about Timothy from childhood. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Or Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God is like imperishable seed. And it's sown into our hearts and it springs up into eternal life by the power of the, the Spirit. Have you experienced the power of the living and active Word of God that is able to build up, to encourage, to give consolation? Has you, have your eyes been opened to the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of forgiveness and a right relationship to God through what Jesus Christ has done in his cross, in his resurrection? And are you growing in the Word of God? And so we see how fundamental the Word of God is. Secondly, we see from our text that there is no growth or edification without understanding God's Word. We see this in this extensive section, six verses 6 through 20, actually. And the principle is stated in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So Paul is saying, there is no benefit to the words I speak to you if you don't understand them. If I'm speaking in tongues, which were known languages of the world, they weren't gibberish, they were known languages, but if you don't understand what that language is, it's not going to build you up. There must be understanding of God's Word to have there be edification and growth. And that may seem obvious, but it's an important point, and we'll see some applications of that. And so Paul states this principle and restates it a number of, this t- of times in this section, and he gives some examples of it. In verse 7, he uses the example of musical instruments, and he says, 
Even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? You know, I've touched a harp before, but you don't want to hear me play a piece of music on the harp. I mean, I can, I can play some harp strings, but you would all be saying, what is he doing? I have no idea what that piece is. So Paul says, that's true for that. And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, he's talking about military maneuvers, and bugles would make certain bugle calls, and that would mean attack or retreat. I was reading about the advance of the Allies after the D-Day beach landings, and not a lot of thought by the generalship of the Allies was given to how to fight through the the bow cage or the hedgerows in the Normandy area. They had various plans and tried various attacks, and one of the attacks involved this massive Allied airstrike of the enemy lines, which was pretty close to the American lines, and they they used various techniques to kind of try to delineate where the end of the American lines were, or the Allied lines, and where the beginning of the German lines were. And the problem was some of the actual uh, smoke canisters and so forth that they used were used by the British to denote other things. And so there was confusion because the pilots weren't sure what those smoke signals meant, so to speak. And a number of allies, a number of the soldiers were injured and killed because of bombs that were misplaced. So it is, Paul saying, in military, the bugle must give a distinct sound. And then he even goes on to say in verses 10 through 11, the nature of language itself He's saying, doubtless, um, there are many languages in the world and none without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and a speaker a foreigner to me. And don't we all know what that's like? If somebody's speaking a foreign language, all you can do is pretty much smile and shake your, nod your head, and you don't even know what's being said. And then there's this exhortation regarding tongues, the use of tongues in verses 13 through 19. And Paul is encouraging them to pray that they would be able to interpret. Interpret was a divine gift as well. In fact, that's what's being spoken of in verses 14 and 15 when he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I don't think that meant that the speaker didn't understand what he was saying. He's saying his mind is unfruitful in that there's no interpretation for the others around him. And so that's why the context there shows that they should pray to interpret what they've spoken in tongues. But the point of all of this Paul is making here, a very obvious one, is that as Christians we are built up in Christ as we understand God's Word and take it by faith and apply it to our lives. We cannot and we must not circumvent our minds. A key principle of Scripture. And in verse 20, I think it's summarized there as he transitions to a new thought. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. That reminds me of Rabbi Zacharias's radio program, Let My People Think. I think it's a good title to that very excellent radio preaching show. It reminds me of Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. 
And how important to be reminded of this as Christians over and over again. We, we live in a world that is dominated by feelings. Do what you feel, not by what you know to be true, by your understanding of the Word of God. And one of the great aims of the Reformation was the goal of having the Scriptures in the language of the people. William Tyndale was martyred for really being the prime person responsible for getting the Scriptures in English. And so much of the authorized version, the King James version of Scripture, was a result of William Tyndale's work, so much of the beauty of that translation. And he died eventually, put to death, because of his great efforts that the people of God would understand the written Word of God. This principle also refutes all the New Age teachings that you might have heard or thought about or seen in movies about emptying your mind as a goal of so-called spiritual enlightenment. We are to never to do that. Christians are never to seek to just empty their minds. In fact, it's very hard to empty your mind because your mind always is trying to think about things. In fact, the kind of techniques that are taught to empty your mind usually are achieved by the use of the mindless repetition of a word or a phrase. You just say it over and over and over. That's not a good thing to do. That's contrary to what Paul is saying here about it's important that we understand. That's not biblical transformation. Christians are always called to have our minds fixed on God's Word, and that Word fundamentally reveals Jesus Christ and who he is to us. Another trend that this principle corrects is seeking to have our emotions moved directly without our minds being enlightened. In other words, any kind of religious experience that circumvents the mind and goes straight to the emotion or straight to even the will, it might be possible for a powerful speaker to tell emotional stories that move people deeply, maybe even to the point of making some kind of a commitment. But in doing so, there's the real danger of bypassing the mind. God moves the mind through His Word, and the heart is enlightened, the emotions are moved, and the will decides. That's, that's the normal biblical way for change to take place. That's what happens in true Christian conversion and and true Christian growth. It always involves the enlightenment of our mind by the Word of God. And so don't give up seeking to grow in understanding God's Word. And at this point, I would just like to make some applications that I try to make every few years at least about reading God's Word for the new year. Maybe some of you are resolving to read through the Bible in a year, or you don't have to read the whole Bible in a year, but to read it regularly, to not give up. Number one, expect resistance. Realize that exposing our hearts regularly to God's Word involves spiritual warfare. There's like an invisible force field against this. It's much easier to read the newspaper, to watch TV, to do just about anything else than than read the Word and to pray. Our flesh, the world, the devil all work against us. So expect resistance. Number two, seek to have a plan to read God's Word. Take so many minutes a day, plan to have a pencil and paper in hand to write down some thoughts about it. 
There's got to be a plan. Number three, seek to meet with God in the Word of God. You don't want it to just be an exercise that's purely intellectual. You want to be asking God for his help and asking Jesus Christ to abide in you by having his word abide in you. And don't be surprised as you seek to meet with God if suffering and the afflictions God may be bringing you through deepens your understanding of the word of God. So seek to meet with God. And finally, don't give up. So keep that in mind. God uses his word by teaching us and helping us to understand it. Our third main point is this, as we work through this text. One of the solemn judgments of God is to remove the clear proclamation of his word. One of the solemn judgments of God is to remove, to take away the clear proclamation of his word from a church or from a society. And we see this in verses 21 to 23. I'm not going to go into depth of this, but to see something of the sign function of the gifts of tongue. There we read, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers, not for unbelievers, but for believers." If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Now, this subject of the sign nature of tongues is somewhat complex, but I'll try to summarize it for you in brief here. Two points on this. Tongues were a sign of the new worldwide scope of the gospel. The day of Pentecost dawn, and the early church began preaching the gospel, and God gave the gift of tongues so that there were all these languages of the world in which the gospel was being preached. It was an amazing miracle. And it was symbolic. It stood for the fact that now that Jesus had come and died and rose, the gospel was going to have a worldwide impact. And it made sense that all these languages symbolized that. Now, we have to realize that once this historical time period had come to an end, there was no longer a need for this sign. Maybe some of you have read Dr. O. Palmer Robertson's little booklet about this. He does such a good job of describing this sign nature ending. It's like if you were driving on a road and you saw a sign ahead that said, sharp curve ahead, you know, one of those sharp turns, and you kept going and you went around the curve then the question is, do you still need that sign? No, you went around the curve. And so the sign of tongues in that way had a limited value for a given historical period. It symbolized that worldwide proclamation of the gospel, but it was limited in its usage, and historically, we believe, it ended. The other nature of the sign of tongues is a sign of judgment. And that's the emphasis of the apostle here. When he says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Quoting Isaiah. And you think of Old Testament Israel. What did it mean to the Old Testament people of God when they started to hear foreign languages? 
Well, that happened when a foreign army invaded and began to decimate your nation. That wasn't a good sign that suddenly there are foreigners speaking to you. It symbolized God's judgment, and the people eventually were taken into exile. And Isaiah speaks about that. But at the time of Christ and when Pentecost occurred, we must understand that there was also a judgment of God being revealed to Israel, especially that they had rejected their Messiah. So when Pentecost occurred and the gospel was going out to the world, those foreign languages spoken were a sign of judgment on the people of God who should have been having a right response to the message in their native tongue. So in other words, it was a sign of judgment to unbelievers who were resistant to the word of God. And that can be true for unbelievers generally as well. And that's the point of the verses quoted here in verses 21 to 23. The prophets of old spoke about a famine, not of a lack of food, but a famine in regard to hearing the word of God, a different kind of famine than we think about. A nation could have a famine like that with all the grocery shelves full of produce and meats and all kinds of things. It's a judgment of God to withdraw from a people or a society the clear preaching and teaching of the Word of God. It's a solemn thing. Some of you might have read the newspaper story this week. It's just a little interest story on one of the inside sections of the Lancaster paper about what local pastors are praying for in 2016. I just can't help but reading these stories. Like I, and they showed about 10 pastors and what they were praying for. And at least two of them were really solid and just biblically gospel-based, talking about praying for the gospel of Jesus Christ, praying that people would find the joy of worshiping the true God and, and things like that. But Some of the answers were very disheartening and probably not unexpectedly completely humanistic and man-centered answers with no mention of the Bible or the gospel or the, the nature of salvation in Christ. And as I read that, I just thought, this is a judgment of God being revealed. And it's usually not long after a church begins to abandon the word of God as true and authoritative and without error, usually within a generation or two when God's word is absent for the church to really, for the most part, die, to die spiritually. And so we must pray for God to continue to bless us as a church with the truth of his word, how blessed we are here at Westminster. And and I don't say this about myself, but we have the word of God proclaimed regularly and taught to our children, to our adults, as in all the different segments of our church and all the different ways, we are feasting on the Word of God. And let us pray, oh Lord, don't let us waste this stewardship you've given us. Help us to be faithful to it. Don't give us a famine for the Word of God. And as we see our larger society slipping away from gospel roots, let us pray for the Word of God to triumph again. Our final point is this, God's word proclaimed is powerful to transform hearts. I love the concluding verses of our text, verses 24 and 25, where Paul says, but if all prophesy 
and all, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What we're seeing here is a description of true conversion and that increasingly uh, that transformation that Christians experience as they continue to fellowship with the living God in His Word and by the power of the Spirit. And the emphasis here is really, if you look at these elements, call to account, secrets of the heart, falling on His face, it's a description of true conviction of sin and true repentance and faith leading to true worship and turning away from idolatry. It is a wholehearted, whole-person conversion that one sees the depths of one's sin and turns to Jesus Christ and now worships Him and loves Him and walks with Him. Patty and I were reading some of the Chronicles of Narnia out loud, and we hadn't done that for a while. And just to hear in book one, when the Peter, uh, the children, Peter and Susan and Lucy and Edmund, and Mr. Beaver begins to tell them about Aslan. And you get their reactions, and they kind of feel good things about that. And then they also have a sense of their sin. They have a sense that all is not right with them and this king of this land. It's the sense in which God's word comes And these words, these descriptive accounts by Paul, shows us the idea that God's Word unmasks our hearts. We all tend to go around with masks over the sins of our heart. And God's Word exposes what Scripture calls deceitful desires, all those things, greed and envy and lust and pride and unbelief, all those lusts of our hearts. And God exposes them and lays them bare. And then By the power of the Spirit and the Word of God and the gospel of Christ, He sets us free from these idolatries to worship the true God. What a great freedom that is. And then to declare, as He says in this text, that God is really among you. You know, think of them meeting in some home. And these were not great mansions for the most part. They might have been bigger than a slave hut. These were not cathedrals. Maybe you've been in a cathedral in Europe, and you've just been in awe. And certainly the architecture of these cathedrals, you know, at least that still points us to God. But to think that in a humble home in the Roman world, an unbeliever could come in, and because of the Word of God being spoken and unmasking their hearts and showing the glory of Christ— There's this sense that they fall down and say, God is really among you. That was my experience at college when I first went to a Bible study group. And I had been going to church all my life, but I met with these other students, and they were studying the Word of God and praying from their hearts. I just remember going away thinking, they know God in a way that I don't. And I've been going to church 52 weeks a year. God is really among you. And that would be a terrifying thought if not for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact, the idea of God among them. And so the gospel is a comforting thought instead. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins 
in the light of your presence. Isn't that the sense here about being convicted of all? And so our sins are laid bare before this God with whom we have to do, this God to whom we must give account. But the glory of the gospel is, it's like taking a document that lists all of our sins and putting it in a shredder and shredding it finally once and for all so that God doesn't hold it against us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are not trusting Jesus Christ tonight at the beginning of 2016, then it should be a sobering and awful and, in a sense, terrifying thought to think that you have to give an account to the God who created you and sustains all things and holds your very life in his hands. And yet he is a God that has declared a way of forgiveness and new life through Jesus Christ. Glory be to God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this amazing refuge for our sin-sick souls that in the Lord Jesus Christ our sins were judged on the cross, that he did not turn away from that cup which we read about and heard about this morning, that he willingly bore it for us. Help us to truly enter into that if we have not, and to walk in that this year as we heed your word, as we are transformed by it, as we rejoice in the God whom we worship, the God who is true. Through Jesus Christ we pray.